I heard it last night, and you know, I'm I'm already starting to fall asleep myself. So I'll try to stay awake for this certainly. And uh, technology put uh, crossed me out, so that's what it is. Well, look, I told I call myself a collecting voyeur because that's what I am. I got to watch all of you collect. You come and buy things from me or from another dealer or something, and I watch your collections grow. And my the money you give me, you know, it's gone within a week. But you've got my material, see? I can keep the stories, and I'm going to keep some of the stories alive today, at least, of things that have come through my hands. And I thought I'd talk about more about the Commander-in-Chief than Fredericksburg, sorry, for the, uh, for the anniversary. But really what I do is collect you. I collect all of you who come to the shop and our friends and uh, and I collect your stories and uh, watch your collections grow and I enjoy that. It's really a, a good thing to do. My my own shop, everything, you know, that's my collection, but it changes daily. So I'm not going to really go through the uh, bookshop, Abraham Lincoln bookshop uh, history because most of you know it. I'll just say quickly that Ralph Newman began it as home of books in 1933 and uh, Carl Sandburg pushed him toward uh, Civil War and Lincoln to uh, specialize. He was right in the middle of the war years anyway, writing it, mid-30s. In 38, Ralph began specializing in um, Lincolniana and the Civil War. His first logo is something I came across since just a, last year was our 85th time, 85th year, excuse me, um, I did a lot of research. I found, for instance, that I thought this was the sixth location that I was in. It's the 10th. And uh, found other areas that Ralph had went around with. Um, so that was kind of nice. But that first logo of his was Lincoln with two swords crossing in back of him, or through him. <laughs> And that was pretty weird. He dumped that quickly, and uh, he uh, purloined Carl Sandburg's hat and umbrella, which he had made for Harcourt Brace when they were producing uh, the Prairie Years, actually. So uh, that's how that came. But you know, there's nothing more. To, and I came in 1971, and uh, so that's 49 years or so. And uh, I, I started out at Paperback City in New York the year before, so I was already a big book dealer. And I was um, fascinated to finally come to a history shop, because that's what I told my parents I was going to be doing. I'm going to open up a history shop. Ha, ha, ha. And there was one that I came to. So it was good. It was a kind of a marriage for a while for Ralph and myself, and most of you know the history of that. Um, but the bottom line is there's a reason why there's no Millard Fillmore bookshop. <laughs> Never opened. And so we're all hanging on to Lincoln's long coattails, at least I am, for dear life. And of course Lincoln is ingrained in our history, in our culture, because I think of martyrdom. There wouldn't be an Abraham Lincoln bookshop without martyrdom, I don't think. So that's how he just became ingrained in all of us, and also for that matter in the world. Martyrdom did that as well. Um, two quick stories that I'm reminded of. Uh, my father had been a psychoanalyst and president of the American Psychiatric Association one year. I come to you pre-shrunk. 
<laughs> it took me 70 years of my 75 to come up with that, but there it is. And uh, so he had a group come in from China, uh, physicians. And he had a little soiree at his home, and I went to that as well. And I sidled up to the eldest of the lot, very wise and old man with a long beard. And um, he asked me what I do, and I started Abraham Lincoln Bookshop. He stopped me and recited the Gettysburg Address, the entirety. And he's, he had been, by the way, Zhou Enlai's personal physician. Zhou Enlai was already gone in that plane crash. But he told me that Sun Yat-sen had mandated that children in China, all through China, had to learn the Gettysburg Address. And he was a young man, young boy, and he learned it. And that's how many Chinese, I bet today, still remember Abraham Lincoln through the Gettysburg Address. The other is, in 89, uh, just before the collapse of the evil empire, Russia had a... Uh, poll. There's a poll in Russia about the, the 50 most important people in history. And, you know, the first ones were the usual reprobates, you know, Brezhnev and Lenin and Trotsky and all those guys. And number 36 was the first Westerner, Abraham Lincoln. So that's how Lincoln is embedded even in Russia, even though he's down to 50. Uh, down to 36. 35, by the way, was a tie between Khrushchev and Jesus. <laughs> True story. You can't make that up. Well, Spielberg, uh, after his movie came out, calls us Lincoln obsessives. And frankly, I, I think it's correct. You know, we're obsessive about our admiration of Mr. Lincoln because we need heroes and mentors in our lives. And Lincoln provides that for us. Indeed, Numbers of institutions today, uh, University of Illinois, Springfield, UIS, Lincoln College, where I was a board member for a decade, and uh, LMU, Lincoln Memorial University. If you've never been there, you really got to do that when it opens up again, the museum. But all of them have character studies based on Lincoln. And I think that's correct, because if, we're, if Lincoln's going to have a tricentennial of his birth, it's okay, he'll be remembered for keeping the union together, perhaps. Slavery gone, perhaps. But I think it's really going to be his character, whom he was, what he represents. I think that's what our, it, we need for one, and I think that is how he's going to be remembered. But of course, I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit quickly about artifacts in general before I get to the main part, because I really want to tell stories. That's what I really enjoy doing, and that's what we'll get to. Uh, but they're part and parcel of uh, historical learning. They're windows to the past uh, that illuminate moments for learning. Again, I'm talking to people who know this, but there are maybe a few who don't, especially over on YouTube. So, artifact. Now, millennials want experiences. That, you know, they don't want to collect, they say, they want experiences. Well, I counter that artifacts can be experiential. You experience someone else's life and time, and it's right there. And it's going to be a part and parcel of your life as well after that. And you can then curate that, and that's how you're going to have experience beyond yourself. And uh, in artifacts anyway in collecting is, to me, an intellectual pursuit indebted to 
arouse curiosity and study. Their flashlight glimpses into the human condition and are produced for some human need or desire. Everything we'll see tonight. There's some reason that exists. And that's one of the things that I as a dealer, you as a collector, have to ferret out. And that's the joy of having a collection. Now, very quickly, I made a, a quick little list because I was thinking, why Lincoln? There's so many intersects that that crash through Lincoln's life. Uh, and so it's rich for collecting artifacts. The, you know, the numbers of stories that are involved in his life, more than most of us have these stories. Politics, campaign, memorabilia, mourning culture, history of photography, the law, use of language, cultural memory, commerce, war, human interaction, and, and more. And each of those have collecting opportunities, whether they're books, autographs, jewelry, weaponry, oil paintings, furniture, prints, broadsides, ephemera of all type, photographs, medals, and just plain stuff. So just to give a quick advice to any budding collectors, quality over quantity. Many times it takes time to learn that. Better to save up and have one great piece than 17 so-so. But then again, you collect the way you wish to collect. Uh, I learned about collectors very early on at the bookshop, maybe the second year, first year even. A uh, middle-aged man came in, uh, African-American, and he came in and asked for books on Franklin Roosevelt. And I helped find a book in Franklin Roosevelt for him. Very happy, went out. And then he came back uh, some months later, and it wasn't until then, really being with him again, I realized he couldn't read. But he wanted to surround himself with someone who was a hero to him. And that would inculcate enough just to have things he couldn't read, but having FDR surrounding him was enough for him. So when does, become, when does one become a collector? Simple answer, when you start to mourn things that you didn't get more than the ones you already have. <laughs> And that happens to me as a dealer, too. Things I passed up I shouldn't have done. And uh, so that, I'm with you on that. Now, uh, we're collectors because others are not. And that came to me very early on at the bookshop as well when the grandson of Jack Arvey, also known as Jake Arvey, came into the shop with a photograph of Kennedy inscribed to Jake Arvey. And Arvey was a big honcho in the Democratic Party. Let's face it. And here was this young man selling off his, his past, his own story. And I just couldn't understand that. I bought it. <laughs> but still, it, I, I understood that's what's going to be happening, and that's what happened. And it finally comes down, all these things come down to someone in the family who just doesn't need it or care for it. I, myself, as a dealer, learn vertically history. Because I get a piece, and then I have to dig down and find out what it's about, why it exists in that particular moment in time. And if I don't have an artifact the next day, I don't know about that day. It doesn't exist to me. So it's really vertically that I kind of learn. Um, I have to be careful uh, all the time for you, and not, not to mention me, because I put my money out for these things, to authenticate pieces that come in. 
And that's always a problem. Not always. Some you always know of military commissions signed by Lincoln, signed 20,000 of those for heaven's sakes. Those are always him. But other things, maybe not. I'll show you a couple examples as we go. In fact, I have a large forgery collection. I have over 70 Lincoln forgeries and others that I've taken off the market that eventually will get to a museum or a library so they can be studied and used and not be sold to someone. And, I, and that's something I mourn. The pieces, and I can remember two or three right now that I wish I could have gotten. They just didn't believe me, I don't think. And they said, oh, you're trying to get a real Lincoln for 50 bucks. Well, okay, so something really pretty interesting that shouldn't be out there is. And stolen items are another thing that I have to be very careful about. And I'm not going to talk about many of those, but there's one in particular that I remember that kind of interesting. Uh, it was a million dollar item just walking into the shop. And it was a guy who uh, was working for the court system, the Cook County Courts. And he had this... and. and <laughs> shocked. And so I got this, what it was, it was a copy letter book of Benedict Arnold going up to try to take Quebec City and these were all the letters he copied in his book that was going back to Washington. And I said, no. This is, you know, first of all, we were all lucky that he didn't take out those letters. Each one was a full letter and he signed each one in his own copy letter book. So it turns out, just to make a longer story short, that he had, well, maybe I will make it a little bit longer. Uh, it had, uh, actually, he walked in and I told him, okay, I'll take it and, uh, and try to find something out about it for you. I warned him, I think this could be stolen. He said, well, I don't know, you know, he gave it to me. And I got to admit, I kept it for about two to three weeks. It was just so much fun having that piece. <laughs> and I just... Every day I looked through it and, wow, and I knew it was going to come to an end. And I finally did. I finally said, okay, I've got to do something about this. And so uh, I was able to find out that it was the main historical society that had owned this. And I called them. And they said, yeah, that's ours. They hadn't told anyone. It was seven, eight months it was taken. And I don't think the director <laughs> wanted the trustees to know that this had happened under her watch. But there it was out there, and this guy could have taken out those letters one at a time and sold them to dealers, perhaps. But anyway, so I put down the phone with Maine, and I picked up the phone with the FBI. And it was inter, interstate. So uh, they sent over the next day, they sent over two agents, and uh, this was soon after um, Silence of the Lambs and Jodie Foster. And all I can tell you is that one of those agents had the nicest legs I've ever seen on an FBI agent. <laughs> and it was just all day I was thinking of Jody Foster. But nonetheless, and they wired me and we brought him in and uh, I thought maybe he had more stuff and didn't happen to be. And uh, they came in and took him away. So uh, that, that was a fascinating piece. And I never did get a, you know, I never did get a thank you note from Maine. Uh, I'm just saying that if you're watching. So, look, the... Um, J.G. <laughs> Randall, a professor of uh, history at uh, University of Illinois years and years ago, back in the 40s, asked the question, is there anything more to talk about about Abraham Lincoln? Is there anything more to study or write about? Well, we know since the 40s, all the books coming out, yeah, there's still a lot. Now, that happened to me with artifacts. 
I'd say somewhere in the early part of this century, uh, I started to wonder. I'm seeing things come through, but some of the same things here and there, nothing really unusual here and there. All of a sudden, I'd say in the next last five, six years, it's kind of been a flood of interesting, unknown pieces that have I've been lucky enough that came through my hands. And it was fun to research them, and I didn't even believe them all when they came in. And I'll show you a few of them today. So that's what I really want to do, and I think that's where we should go to. So uh, if this is on, we'll find out if it is. I don't think so. There it is. Oh, for the machine, of course. There we go. So what that, that was that you saw before was the top half of this. This is the Grace Bedell broadside. Grace Bedell was the 12-year-old young girl in upstate New York who had, his, her father had brought something like this <coughs> home, exactly this home, not the one. And she loved it and wrote to Lincoln, of course, and said that, uh, you know, you, I love the rails, she said, but you look a little gaunt and perhaps you should grow a beard. The women would love it and tell their husbands to vote for you. And of course, he wrote back uh, very famously that, don't you think that would be a silly affectation at this point? But he did it. And so that's what uh, this is. This is not a rare piece. It does come by because, uh, well, I guess I shouldn't say that. It is, it's uncommon. You don't see this all that often. Condition is usually the real problem with this thing. Now, I'm going to go back early on. This is a portion, a small portion, of Lincoln's copy book. He had a sum book, that's better known, large pages, that got taken apart by Herndon when he got it from uh, Lincoln's uh, family, and he took it and uh, took out different ones, gave, gave this historian this, this historian that, and most of them are still around, most of them are in institutions now. But this was a copy letter book, a copy book that he had, and he's working on his penmanship. And on the other side of this, he's working on his premiership with Thomas Lincoln's name. And you, and you know that he and his dad were a bit at odds, a lot at odds. He didn't even go to his deathbed, saying that would be more painful than not. But here he is using uh, his father's name for penmanship. He's now a teenager at this point, maybe 15, maybe 16 years old when he was doing this copy letter book. But I wanted to show that because I really wanted to show this and talk about Tom, Thomas Lincoln for a moment. This is something Thomas made. And it's not a bad piece. Uh, it's really kind of nice, especially when you see it in the, in the, in the wood, in the flesh. And uh, he, had, he really was a carpenter. Uh, he could do beautiful work like this. Maybe Lincoln actually wrote, uh, worked on this because allegedly he worked with his dad on some of these. But I just wanted to say about Thomas that he gets a bad rap. And, you know, I, I don't want to be a high priest at the altar. So I look for places of weakness in Lincoln, things that I don't like or we shouldn't like or is not what we expect Lincoln to be. And I think with Tom, Thomas, that's one of them. I think he was an uh, ungrateful son because... He later said, you know, I was a slave. Talking symbolically about his father sending him out to work and taking all the money that he got. Well, Mr. Lincoln, that's what happened on the frontier. 
There were 14 mouths to feed that Thomas had. And that's what you did when you got old enough to be sent out into the world to make some money for the, for the family. That's what happened. So that's why I kind of, kind of think of him as ungrateful to his dad for that. Also for the slavery issue, because I think his dad had inculcated in him, Abraham, a hatred for slavery. One of the reasons that Thomas went away from the church and actually came up to Indiana. Part of that was labor. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, I think those are things that we should think about when we think about Thomas. Now, this was one of the earliest pieces I had. And long before I could afford to keep something like this, because I now have a big Blackhawk War collection. But look at that wonderful signature. And he's, he, this is the Blackhawk War now. He is... This is his first elective signature, literally. He had just been uh, made a, a captain by friends and neighbors, and he's writing out a Lincoln captain for the first time. And he's, what he's, he's getting guns and bayonets, screws and wipers for his men. And that's what this is. So uh, that's now in a private collection that's uh, actually in the New York Historical Society now. Uh, but that was the first piece I really had that had some substance to it. This just came up recently, another Black Hawk War. I have this right now, so I'm kind of uh, happy to show it. And again, there is that uh, signature, very unusual one, especially that A. But this is an affidavit on the day in January of 19, 1833 that Lincoln was picking up his pay for service in the Black Hawk War. And so were some of his men. And obviously, this is a contract between one of his men and someone else. And Lincoln must have been the witness for it when it was an oral contract. Now, when the pay had to be done, and one was going to be giving most of his pay to the other for the sale of a horse, purchase of a horse, Lincoln was saying, yes, this is exactly what it was. So that's the only one now of Black Hawk War vintage that's in private hands. All the others now... Only 24 pieces from the Black Hawk War that Lincoln had penned or signed. They're all in institutions, so it's kind of nice to have the only one left. This is an interesting thing because, um, well, what should I say? It's a, this is a Dan Rostenkowski moment. <laughs> here he is as, whoops, I didn't want to do that, did I? And here he is as postmaster, free franking. Now here he is in 36. He's writing to a school board that uh, the school commissioners from Morgan County in Jacksonville, Illinois, saying that he had done surveying for them a year over a year before, but as yet I've been paid nothing. Then he duplicates his invoice right here, signs again, and then he free franks this and sends it out because uh, he's postmaster. He can do that. And there he is. Free A. Lincoln, PM for postmaster in New Salem. Isn't that a Dan Ruskinkowski method time <laughs> moment? <laughs> Things were a little bit different back then. Okay, I'll admit that. And he probably didn't feel he was doing anything illegal. But you look back at it today and there it is. This is actually his first survey of... Uh, uh, place called uh, uh, New Boston, and this was near the, near the Mississippi River. And I just wanted to show it because it 
came in a big collection and then it goes into another collection and is never seen, never known. So numbers of these things have never been seen because I, I've been able to get them and I find someone for them quickly and it's gone. So I just wanted to show what this one was. That's his very first survey of any town. Now this check was interesting when I, when I saw John Armstrong. I said, well, this is not the Armstrong of New Salem, by the way. Uh, but uh, this was really getting ready for the nomination. This is February. You have to look there. February of 60. And Armstrong was a contractor in town. And so I said, a contractor? Okay, what was he giving money for? So I called the house, the home. And they said, yeah. At that moment, Lincoln had him come in and work on the house and, they said to me, the outhouse. And the two of them were being renovated at that time. Uh, Armstrong, by the way, was later, when Lincoln became president, he was made uh, postmaster of Sangamon County. But, uh, so, there he was. It was, it was for the outhouse and the house. And why? Well, because of this. Well, soon afterward, nominated, and look at the numbers of people who are coming out with a parade in front of him, and there is Lincoln right there in a white suit, and here is a wonderful sign, won't you let me in, Kansas, and here's the parade going by, this house next door is gone, or probably a shed or barn looks like, I think that's the outhouse right there, that could be Mary, I'm not sure, but there's only one image of this original and I happened to get it and sell it to a guy. He put it up at auction. I bought it and sold it to another guy and that's where it is today. So uh, I just needed to show that because there's only one out there. You'll never be able to get it. I'll never see it again I don't think but I'm ready. If you have one let me know. <laughs> and this I want to show you because I would not seen this letterhead before. And here is Lincoln and Hamlin and this wonderful letterhead for the Republicans in the campaign of 1860 happens to be a letter from Gideon Wells to his son, Thomas Wells. And it's very personal what he's saying there. It's just, you know, I'm going to be here and not there and this is when I'm coming in. But I just love the letterhead and that to me is enough to show it to you, frankly. But also though, because Gideon to Thomas now, Thomas was on Ord's staff, General Ord, at Appomattox. And he was one of the three who actually got one of the pieces of furniture at Appomattox. Uh, we all know the Chicago History Museum has the, the marble desk where Grant and Lee signed off on the surrender. And it's known that Sheridan came, out, came up there and threw 20 bucks, allegedly, on the floor and took... The, the desk that, uh, Link, that Grant was at and uh, sat through the entire time. And many uh, soldiers were saying is that they saw him come out of the house, the clean house, with a little desk on his, uh, <laughs> over his shoulder, got on his horse and ride away. That's in the Smithsonian today. And then uh, Thomas, though, got one more desk, and that's this one. I have, I've had this twice. This is the third one that was in the, in the room. And uh, Thomas Wells gave this to Gideon because Gideon was a collector, uh, all sorts of things. And that was in his, his uh, collection. And then it came down to Thomas. I have a letter of his, or went with this, that 
said it was in his office right now. And then his grandson decided to sell it against the wishes of the other part of the Wells family that still exists. And he sold it at an auction, which I bought for one of my clients. Uh, he looked just like Gideon. I saw him in the back. And DNA works. That's all there is to it. It was, it was him. And he told me that as a child, he had a, a fish tank on top of this. So there you are. Now that is probably the nicest life mask I've ever ever owned myself. Uh, and it came, interestingly, it, it was what happened is that the original life mask of Lincoln that Leonard Volk made in Chicago uh, in the hands, uh, he, had, he had given that to his son, the original. And his son, Douglas, who was a very good artist himself, had that, saw that growing up. He saw Lincoln's face every single day. And uh, he then gave it to one of his friends, who was an artist. Uh, and then Richard Gilder, a, a lawyer in New York, found it and said, this belongs to the nation. He gave a subscription to buy the, the mask, the original. And every single person who gave to that uh, got something made by St. Gaudens, Augustus St. Gaudens. And they got either a plaster or a bronze mask. So what, of course, St. Gaudens does is he took the original mask and he put, with a release on it, and he put uh, a blob of plaster on it and got the impression. There's your negative. But then you have to clean it. So you put, again, a release in there, and then you put more plaster in there, and then when it hardens just enough, you take it out. That's it. That's about as close as you can get to the original that I've ever seen. And this was given to, uh, to Gilder uh, by... Uh, St. Gordon's. So that's, it, you could, when you saw it, it was just, you know, there's the animal himself, as he would have said, and did say. Now the hands that Gilder made, that Volk made uh, in Chicago, uh, were also reproduced by this guy, Jules Bircham, of the American Art Browns Foundry. He's actually the one who recast the lions for the Art Institute in Chicago. He did that work. But he also did the hands. And that's about as nice as I've seen. Cleaned them up a little bit, like the nails are kind of cleaned up a bit. But you can just see everything on there. These came from the originals. Look at the pores you can see. And then he put Volk on there because he was doing it for Volk. So those are about as nice of hands as I've seen. Now these are a little bit older than I've had, but uh, I wanted to show you that. Here's something that really is new that I had never seen anything like this before. You know, your collectors, you know this. Lippincott had a very well-known autograph book. And it was red uh, leather and blank pages. And you go into Washington, and maybe you get the president and the vice president. Maybe you get uh, the, the Supreme Court. You certainly get as many House of Representative people you can, as many senators. And those are the books that we have. You have to keep turning pages to find whomever you want. This guy, John Beam, who had been a newspaper publisher and a Union soldier with, uh, it was promoted because of his newspaper uh, acumen to get up to the headquarters clerk. And he became a collector. But he did it differently. He didn't get that autograph book. He took two pages like this and just had them start to sign. And he started, and 
Bjorn, who works with me in the shop, uh, and I, had, especially with Bjorn, had to figure out the lineage of where, how it began, where it was, because there are groupings of people in here. So here's McPherson, just before he was killed. And you can see Lorenzo Thomas, but look at the top. Here's Lincoln, Johnson, there's Grant, you see Stanton, Holt is there. Um, and so he left the top of this blank so that he could go someday. And he was finally, at the beginning of 1865, sent to Washington. His pass came with this. And there are about uh, 62 signatures on here and also on the next page. And, uh, and there are some Confederates here because he was out in the West. Here's Kirby Smith. There's Magruder. There's Dana. And, all, and here is Beam. Let's see if I can find him again. I think that's right him. Is that him? I think so. So that's a, an amazing piece to have them all up like that. You can view them all. You don't have to keep going through. There they all are. And it's, you know, Nathaniel Banks, Farragut is there. Uh, Hurlbut is there. Um, McCook, McPherson, I told you. Magruder, I told you. Dabney Maury is there. Rosecrans, Phil Sheridan. Sherman, E. Kirby Smith, Stanton, Steele, Stone, Richard Taylor. So he really had a great collection that he put together here. And I just had to share this with you because no one will ever see this again. Again, I sold it to a guy and it's sitting in his collection. Now this one was a, one that I, a letter I got a long time ago. And strangely enough, my brother-in-law wanted it. So, okay, I sold it to him, tripled the price. <laughs> and um, later on, he wanted to sell it just last year. So he said, sell this for me. And I couldn't believe I was getting it back. It was great because not so much of what Lincoln is saying here. And here is Simon Cameron, the Secretary of War. It's October of 61. And it's written to him. And he approves this. But uh, the thing that was really wonderful about this you never see is a... A, uh, the whorls of Lincoln's fingertip, an actual fingerprint. You don't see that. Uh, he had large hands, as you know. He, he wrote his name with endorsements and, and documents and everything else. He, every morning he was just writing, 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 got ink on his hands, and he wrote something, took this letter, and put it over here, and we get his fingertip. I see smudges a lot, but I never see fingertips, and that's the best one. I've now gone out to try to find others. I wanted to do a little story with them if I could do that. But um, the papers of Abraham Lincoln, unfortunately, did wonderful work, but they didn't look for fingerprints as they were, because they handled every single piece that they've seen that is there in Springfield, but they didn't keep that track, so we'll never know now. It'll be too difficult. Look at that strange signature, though. Now, here's something again that is, was unknown to autograph dealers. It's well known that the first presidents were always having to sign land grants. So you can get uh, Jefferson Madison, Madison Monroe, Secretary of State, uh, Monroe, John Quincy Adams, the Secretary of State, and it goes all the way through Jackson. The first and the second term of Jackson is when it stopped, because Jackson threw up his hands at signing all these land grants because they were giving grants of land to try to get people out to the West, our area. 
and uh, and push the Indians out. So, uh, so he stopped signing them. He got his own son in to actually sign for him in, in the land office, and Van Buren got his son in to sign for him. And it's well known. Go to the internet. It's well known. There's no land grant signed by a president after Andy Jackson's first term, second term on, none, period. Well, all of a sudden someone came to me with this and it took me a while to figure this out. Yes, really? Is this so? Can this be? Because here's a land grant and here is Lincoln signing it. Now, usually in the land grant, the secretary would sign the president right here. This is what Lincoln crossed out. It says, by. And this over here says secretary, he crossed that out. Here's the recorder of the land, land office. And Lincoln signed this. Well, an interesting part of this is what date it was. Here it is, the 2nd of January of 1863. What happened the day before? Emancipation. Here he is, the day after emancipation. He, there was a big soiree in the White House. People were coming in. He had this prepared beforehand, and he signed this. And why did he do that? Because, because of Horatio King. Horatio King had been a Democrat, but was on the side of the Union. Uh, and uh, he and a Republican and someone else, I'm forgetting who it was, uh, were put together in April of 62, to rid Washington, D.C. of slavery. They had already voted. The district is going to be without slaves. So those three were appointed by Lincoln to go in and make sure that happened. So here he is giving land, saying thank you to Horatio King. He gave it to him because this is for his daughter-in-law, Emma King, and uh, for land in Minneapolis, near Minneapolis. So he's, he's thanking Horatio with this by actually signing a land grant and giving it to him for his daughter-in-law. Another thing that came up uh, I've never seen before either is this nice little uh, delivery, messenger delivery book. And here is, oops, go back here. So here is, it's written, uh, Frank A. Colbath, Washington, D.C., commenced March 6th, 1865, for the U.S. Senate Capitol, delivered the following messages to. So then he went out and he started delivering these things. And on the left-hand page, he would say, who's going to? And on the right-hand page, he, it would have to be a signature accepting whatever it was that was coming to them. Well, here you see Gideon Wells. But... Here he is, he had to give something to the president. So I kind of envision that he knocked on the door and Lincoln came in his slippers and said, yes. And I said, I have something for you, Mr. President. Oh, thank you. Uh, let me have it. He said, well, I need your signature in this book first, please. I said, well, you know who I am. And, you know, come. And he said, this is a signature required, sir. And so he signed it. So I... I've never seen that happen before, where he himself signed for something he received. What I like about it even more, and I didn't show, I think, the page with John Hay. There were two others going to uh, the White House, Executive Mansion. John Hay signed for one, and the others 
was signed by David o David Neal, Secretary to President. He's really not known. He was taken up just at the end of 64 and into 65. There was so much to do with the war ending that they had to get Neal to come in and help as a secretary. So there's a kind of rare signature. Not so much Lincoln, but it's nice to see them together. This I'm showing you because it's a peeved woman, Mary Lincoln, and anxious. And here's a telegram uh, that is signed Mrs. A. Lincoln uh, on January 7th of 62 to her son, Robert, in Cambridge, through the War Department. Have you received the passes sent to you a week since from Boston to Washington? Return answer through War Department. Answer immediately by order of president through the War Department. So there she was, and I'm sure Robert was anxious to get back to that. But nonetheless, there's, there's Mary trying to get love her son to come in. And the interesting thing was then, later I got this letter of, and this is just about a year ago actually that I got this. And here is Robert Lincoln in Springfield, March 4th of 59. And here he's writing to a friend of his who uh, he had been in school with before. And he says, in part, uh, it's been dull. If it has been dull there where his friend was all winter, as it is here just now, you have been having a sorry time. Father came home yesterday from Chicago and told me your father would probably send you to Harvard University next fall. They've been thinking of sending me somewhere, but have not made up their minds yet. It's a matter of indifference to me where I go so I can get away from this place. <laughs> and I know I was a teenager and I loved my parents, but I couldn't wait to get away. And so he's doing the exact same thing, but maybe with Mary, it was a little more imperative. Now here's a little drawing I had about this high. And I had this in a big collection that came to me, and I didn't know what it was. It was pretty good. I liked it a lot. And it had kind of a verite to it, really something. And I wondered, gee, had he seen Lincoln? He had done this? And I thought it kind of looks that way, but I didn't know what it was. And I put it away literally for about 15 years. And then just last year, a colleague of mine comes to me with this. And... Here is a drawing by David Struther, who was an artist of the day. And uh, this is really a from-life drawing. It's a field sketch of Lincoln. And this was the original at the, at the place when he was looking at Lincoln. That's why I'm saying it's from life. This is also from life because he did this. Of course, what is he saying here? It's the, a practical reminder. And that's to McClellan. Hey, to Richmond. A little practical reminder. But the thing that is really interesting to me is that you know what photography was like during the day. And you had to sit very still and you couldn't smile. You looked like a crazy man smiling for 28 seconds while the, while the light came down on you and your photons went through the glass plate. Well, he did something here that was kind of interesting from life. We're seeing Lincoln's teeth from someone who saw them from life. And he saw Lincoln a couple of times. He saw him in Antietam earlier and, and close up with him. And then again uh, in the field here. And he used that 
for here. And here is our gaps in Lincoln's teeth, by the way, which doesn't surprise me thinking where he came from and how much dentistry he probably had. But I've never found in these sketches the original life sketch on the field. And then when he goes back to his drawing board in his studio, he produces the finished product. I've never seen the two together. And I was able to find out what that was. Came from the, the, the first one came from King Hostick. Anyone remembers King Hostick from Springfield? It's another story, another, another lecture. Uh, this is a, uh, a, a large piece that I did, albumin. This is made off an original uh, glass plate. Uh, it's at Brown University, actually. It's a CDV, you know, two and a half by four inches. We all know cards to visit. And that's the size of this. But I wanted to bring Lincoln up, and I did this... Uh, I had done uh, by people who know how to do this beautiful uh, albumin piece because that's what the, the glass plate was made to produce, albumin. And they made it in the exact same manner that they would have back then. And it's a little bit on the purplish side because that's what people in the day would have seen. All these carts that we see today, they're made of albumin and albumin is egg whites and it it's a natural product and changes over time, just like iron does. So uh, this is really still kind of purplish. thing that I liked about it though is when I made it this large, on the carte de visite photo, which is not uncommon, you can see it, but there's always been on his leg a little white spot. And I never understood what that white spot was. Lint? I, I couldn't, it couldn't have been a non, you know, sometimes there's a bubble in uh, a collodion wet plate and it bursts and there's no collodion there. So it would be black, but this was white. So I, when we blew it up, I finally found out what it was, a fly. And it was August in Washington, Alexander Gardner taking his photo. He had to be still, he probably didn't even see the darn thing. But there it was, sitting on his leg, and I think a very famous fly. In fact, I, I marketed this by uh, saying, see Lincoln's fly. <laughs> yeah, I did a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we did a rim shot for that. Now here's another thing that came up that I just put away. Um, this is an original photograph, really from 1865, by a guy named Wendereth, who was a photographer in Philadelphia, but also like most photographers of the day, they started out as oil painting guys. And Hessler, Alexander Hessler here, he really wasn't a photographer. He didn't think of himself as that. He had on his staff a couple of, he was on Lake Street in Chicago, and he had a couple of uh, people who produced oil paintings of you from photographs that were taken. He was using photography, the new technology, just to make his oil paintings. Then he kind of became a photographer, and that came in. Anyway, this was this. We didn't know why it was, we knew that Wendereth went there and took a photograph of Lincoln and here he did his part after the assassination to try to sell something on Lincoln. But the interesting thing is then about, uh, oh, seven, eight years ago, no, no, less than that, for about five years ago, this came to me, an oil painting, large. And I said, whoa, I know that thousand foot stair and I know what that looks like, but look at the rest of it. So literally what this oil painting did was unveil a photograph that has been lost. 
That's the entire photograph that Wendereth took. And why was he doing, why was he making oil paintings then? Just like Hessler here, just like Brady and his wall of the famous. He wanted oil paintings up there on the wall. Look, look, ma'am, who we just had sitting in that chair. You should sit there and get an oil painting of you. And so that's what it was. But then he wanted to bring Lincoln's face up when, uh, when he, uh, when, after the assassination. So that's why he just took that part. And now we know what the entire lost photograph looked like. And the best part about it is that you can really see those hands. They're so up close. And you can see the veins and the tonality that we never saw before from someone who knew how to look at someone and do that. This I have to show you because it's just gorgeous. This was made for the Chicago Sanitary Fair in uh, 1865 in May. Uh, and Lincoln and his cabinet, second cabinet, so you don't see that very often, had this beautiful piece that uh, was, was made up to be sold there. And I guess it was. I can't find who bought it going through, but nonetheless, that's where it was. But, you know, it's, uh, the assassination turned this beautifully patriotic piece into a poignant memorial. But gorgeous, huh? Now, I talked about forgeries coming in, and I have to be authenticate. This was the very first one that I ever had. And I didn't know. You know, I was learning at that time. And this had to have been mm, mid-70s, something like that, that it came in. And I, you know, so about, I was in five, six years, maybe, still learning the trade. Ralph told me it took him a dozen years to learn. And even with him, it took me a good decade to really feel comfortable with Lincoln's signatures coming through. Um, so the, the interesting thing and why I found out that it wasn't is that when I went to Lincoln day by day, Lincoln wasn't at City Point in that day. So he wasn't a bad forger, but a lousy historian. <laughs> Thankfully, huh? So I, I got that, and this first one I took off the market. And then others came, as I said, over 70 of them. Here's another one that was done by Joseph Cozy, who was uh, also a chemist. And there were four iron gall uh, inks during Lincoln's time, Civil War, four strains. And one of them actually made it up to the 1930s. And I think he was able to copy that and use that. This is Joseph Cozy. He was ready to do this pretty well. And look at those A. Lincolns, they're not too bad. And uh, even the writing, this is freehand is not too bad. But now I know Joseph Cozy, and uh, he's not getting by me now. And again, there's another one out there that, I, that he, they wouldn't sell to me. Beautiful piece. And boy, I wanted that piece and get it off the market too, uh, just to put with this. But, so somewhere out there is another piece very much like this. Now here's a guy who really, can I say this, pissed me off. And this is John Hay. Because here is John Hay in May of 65. And, he, and the executive mansion, May 1st of 65, a couple of weeks after the assassination, when he's in deep mourning, or should be, and he's sending to this woman, uh, enclosed as requested by you in your note of the 28th of April. And, Link, and John Hay sign, uh, signed that and sent it off with what she requested. 
this. Now, did Lincoln sign lots of these and have them there for Hay to give out when he needed it? There are a couple of examples of sheets where it's A. Lincoln, A. Lincoln, A. Lincoln in three columns. One of them I think Cornell has. It's cut off a little bit. Two of them are cut out. On the top of it, it says, these are all authentic, John Hay. Well, maybe, because that's John Hay. And he did this forgery. You know, to, you know, that's what really angers me. Just when he's in the middle of mourning, he's forging Lincoln's signature. Now, during the last part of the war, when Neil came in, they needed more hands as clerks, uh, he was signing a lot for Lincoln, especially all of these, let this man take the oath of December 8th, 1863, and be discharged, A. Lincoln and the date. And we see that all the time out in the field. I'm sure you've seen them as well. But a lot of them were signed, were written out and signed by John Hay. Now those are secretarials, I'll give him that. He was a secretary to Lincoln helping him out. But he should have put in parentheses SGD, that next to the signature, that it was signed by someone else. That's what that means. But he didn't do that. And I see those things come up at auction. I've called a couple of the auctions and they've still auctioned them off. So John Hay is out there as Lincoln, posing as Lincoln, but this one was really pretty blatant to me. It's in my collection. This is what it should be. So one should look like. He was much, much neater for that too. You see how he squeezed in that A and kind of went down. It wasn't very good. He didn't do a good job. Nonetheless, don't get a fake Lincoln. <laughs> Talking about maybe fake Lincolns, Here's a piece that I'm fighting for with Springfield. This is a letter that he wrote now. Do we know September 22nd, 1862? Anyone know what that is? Preliminary Emancipation Day. That's the day he signed the Preliminary Emancipation, September 22nd of 62. And this woman, a sister, Mary Carroll, uh, came in looking for a hospital chaplain, a Catholic hospital chaplain, they needed more in the hospital for Catholic soldiers who were in there. And so she came in, asked, and Lincoln didn't have to sign this. He, all he had to do was write it out and give it to her and let her go to wherever she had to go to to uh, get this chaplain hopefully made, probably the War Department. But September 22nd, things were going on. And in the afternoon, Lincoln went into the cabinet room with his cabinet and sign the Emancipation Proclamation. Abraham Lincoln. You know, he has to sign, all the presidents, they have to sign in full any official document. That's why all these commissions are a full Abraham Lincoln. Probably also why Andrew Johnson, when he came in, started to have them stamped. He was tired of signing. But Lincoln signed them all, and all in Abraham Lincoln. He had to do that. Also affix the seal documents or Emancipation Proclamations. So, he signed it and came out, and I think that woman was still there. And either she knew what went on, or she just felt she needed a signature of his. So went back to him, and here he is coming out of signing the Emancipation Proclamation, preliminary. What have I done? This is a, a big deal. And he had to, all of a sudden, his mind was 
totally elsewhere. He had to sit down. He had just signed Abraham Lincoln on an important document. He sat down and started to write Abraham again. A.B. stopped. I don't have to do that. And did Lincoln as well as he could at that time. I'm fighting for that. I think that that is a good signature. I took it to a forensic lab, and we took a microscope, microscopic piece from both the uh, up, uh, the ink on top, and from his signature, and compared them. And they were almost exact, not quite. There were two different iron gall solutions. But at the same time, they were of the period. So I asked, I asked Springfield, Okay, so who did this? How about John Hay? No, that's not John Hay. How about John Nicolay? No, you wouldn't have made that mistake. How about a forger? A forger wouldn't have made that mistake. No, that's not a forger, they say. So I say, whom else is left? Mr. Lincoln. So I'm trying to get this into uh, the papers of Abraham Lincoln as a signed piece and also to put on two more zeros at the end of this <laughs> if I can get it back from uh, the, the owner of this, huh? Whoops. Oh, it's this way, right. There it is, up, up close. And by the way, in the Emancipation Proclamation, January 1st, when he signed that, this O is exactly the same. He kind of stopped and hesitated, maybe. Too much ink ran. Exactly the same spot. Another reason I think that is probably him. No, it is him, not probably. Now, this is Pierre Morand, who had been an artist on the streets many times of Washington and found Lincoln out there, Mary and, Lincoln, and Abraham out there, and did numbers of uh, a street uh, drawings of him that he went back and, and made them better. Well, he also went into New York and bribed a guard to get in there. And, you know, Stanton wouldn't have allowed this. And drew this. Now this one is actually the finished product, as he said. Finished drawing. Pierre Moran. That's on the back, right there. And he said, City Hall, New York, 25 April of uh, 65. That's that is the last image of Lincoln from the flesh. Period. There it is. And there are, there's, I had actually, strangely enough, I had both the preliminary one later, and this one first. So it's kind of interesting to see how the progression uh, took place as well. But, uh, you know, that makes the hackle stand up in back of me. Wow, that's something else. Now, this is something I have to show you because um, of uh, John Wilkes Booth. And I saw this and I said, Peter Tartable. That sounds familiar to me. Who the hell is he? I don't remember. I had to go look at him. He's a musician. Turns out that, first of all, he was a musician with the Marines. And he played for Lincoln at the first inaugural. So he was right there for the first inauguration of Lincoln. And then in the middle of the war, he left the Army, he left the Marines, and uh, went on to other jobs. One of the things he finally did was he opened up a tavern. And that tavern happened to be, and there is, by the way, his signature right there. I've never seen it before. He, that tavern happened to be right next to Ford's Theater. So, Tartable was the guy who served Booth 
His last whiskey and water, which he asked for, served it to him. He drank it, walked out from Tardival's place right next door and did the deed. So Tardival actually inauguration and right there as well at the, uh, the assassination. But he's the one who gave Booth his first, his last drink, whiskey. Talking about Booth, uh, these are the uh, photographs that would have been on the reward poster. And someone came to me with this envelope and took those out, and he was a photographic collector, and said, you know, you might be interested in these. They came from the reward poster. That's what they would have been used for. And he said, you know, you could find one without them and put them on. Well, no, I would not do that. Thank you. But uh, I said, okay, and I purchased it from him. Uh, but he did not, he was a photographic guy. Didn't care about this. War Department, and a guy named Colonel Edgerton Conger. And he didn't know Conger. Conger was, was taken by Baker, Stanton's right-hand thug, to go out and find, yeah, well, it's true, <laughs> to go out and find Booth. So he did, and that is the exact photograph that identified Booth at the Garrett Farm. When I held that, and you know, thought about him doing that, looking at Booth. In fact, uh, again, two years ago, uh, came a letter from Garrett's son, Richard Garrett's uh, uh, son, 11-year-old, who was there, and he's writing in adulthood to a cousin of his who's doing a uh, biography of the family, a history of the family. And Garrett felt he's doing it wrong about his father, when he saw, when he said, oh no, I didn't know, you know, yes, that's Booth, I didn't know it at the time, when, when he came here. And he's telling his cousin, no, he didn't know. He said, and an officer took a photograph out of his pocket and bent over Booth and identified him. And there it is. So to have Garrett's son attest to exactly what happened, I mean, that's what collecting is about and what artifacts are about. It puts you right there. And, and this is, uh, these are great examples. Peter Tardovo and that one puts you right there. How are we doing here? So, um, I wanted to show you this because I'm going to get another one in a couple of weeks. And so I thought I'd take this out. This is a memorial fan made of aluminum in Cuba. And a Paris firm as well, but it was made in Cuba, Havana. And it was made by something that was fairly new, aluminum. And, um, and you can see the scenes of Booth planning and doing the deed and trying to get away and being shot at the barn. These were for places for photographs. They were made for three different uh, places. The American market would have had generals of the, of the Union and politicians of the Union. Uh, the Spanish market would have had queens of Europe. Not sure they knew what the queens looked like, but there they all were. Uh, and here is the other side of it. And there is Lincoln with cherubs. Oh, I didn't show you that here is Booth with all these little devils <laughs> around him. But with Lincoln, all these cherubs are surrounding him. Some music, memorial music. Now, so the third market that they made was for the Central American woman 
who needed defense. Probably still today in Central America, you need defense. But what they did is put a little stiletto in here, and there's a little, little button here that if you press it up, it comes out. And right here was a little hinged receptacle. You can, and that was for poison. You had to kind of put it into someone's drink real fast when they're not looking. So this was made not only for memorial and a gorgeous piece, but also for defense of the woman in Central America. The one that's coming to me doesn't have the knife. And this is the only one I've ever seen. They said it did. And then when they sent me photographs, I, no, sorry, the wrong one. It was for Spain because that one had those pictures of the queens of Europe still attached. Many times they came right off, like this one probably did as well. Maybe in defense if they came off, right? In the middle of defense. Now here's something I'm working on right now, and you are, well, okay, the second. Last night was the first time I showed this. Uh, and you're the first people to see this. Unknown until this thing came to me from another dealer, and he had a huge collection of pamphlets and things, and these are the wrappers. I'm showing both front and back, nothing on them, but everyone had, no one had known what this was. It was right under their noses, by the way. So Burlingame, who wrote the two huge, the monster on Lincoln, you know, and uh, Harold Holzer and Gelzo and none of them, even though if they looked, they could have found this maybe because no one knew they were, they had them. None of the institutions really knew. But this is what it, what it was. Here is a book that came out of, uh, well, it was really done in, in Chicago. It's an unknown Chicago imprint, pre-fire imprint. And here is a national convention was held in Buffalo, July 9th and also 10th. And this was for a convention of uh, abolitionists, radicals, some free soilers, trying to get monies organized to get monies and committees to get monies to send settlers out to Kansas because from Missouri they were flooding Kansas with slavery people. So they had to get free soilers out there, abolitionists out there. You know, the Old Ridge Hotel, which was burned by Quantrill once and burned another time as safe houses. So what they did, they said, whoops, what they did was uh, they said they appointed a committee. Actually chosen in the proceedings they say appointed. Here they said they chose a committee. So what did that mean? So I looked down the committee pages and seeing who was there. Well, Thaddeus Hyatt, was right here, uh, right there. And here is Dr. Howe, Julia Ward Howe's radical husband, really a radical. Eldridge is there. Um, Ellie Thayer is on the bottom here. He's a, he was a pure abolitionist. Then all of a sudden, looking down the list, there's one Abraham Lincoln, Springfield, Illinois. I, I really started. What is that? What is he doing there? amongst, uh, this is 1856, he was keeping radicals at arm's length, thank you. He may need their votes, but you know, he didn't want to be associated with them. And so there he was. Now I was hell-bent to find that Lincoln was a closet abolitionist. <laughs> and that's what I was looking for. And no one knew this. I went around and asked people, no one, few people, they didn't want to let it out yet. So what this turns out to be is a GoFundMe book. 
really. Um, because the next page, uh, actually this was also, allegedly, this was in Springfield, written in there. But I don't believe it yet. I have to find out why Springfield is there. Not sure it's the same ink, the writing for the day either. But nonetheless. Um, but here they are, expenses for house on Prospect Street. Can't find Prospect, I don't know where it is. Is it in Lawrence, Topeka, Kansas City, where, which Prospect Street it was. But what they were doing is getting funds for these, to get these settlers out to Kansas. And uh, so they're doing it for grading. I don't know, here's someone giving money for grading. Someone else is giving for insurance. Uh, and one of the people, I don't know if I have the next page, I don't, but one of them is Henry Morehouse of Morehouse College, by the way, uh, in Atlanta. So all these people are giving monies for this home, which is a safe home for settlers. Well, then I went to the Kansas, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I'm not going to do it. So I, I went to try to find this. I only found it in one spot. They didn't even know they had it. And, uh, and they didn't even know where, where to look for it. I went to some of the papers of one of the guys who's in here and in Kansas, and I found a file that was suspect. I said, go look there. They found three more of these things. They didn't know existed or had, and, uh, but they, the pages were blank. They hadn't been used. So this is the only one so far that's been used. So still, what is Lincoln's name doing there? Did he approve that? Hard to believe. Well, the smoking gun finally came from the Illinois uh, State uh, Library, and the Lincoln Library has this. And that is this letter from the secretary of the convention, a guy named W.F. Arney, A-R-N-Y. And he was in Chicago, you can see this, and he is writing to Lincoln and asking him uh, to agree to being on this list. Agree on this list? The harm is already done. This is already out here. They've already printed it. And there's nothing back from him, from Lincoln, agreeing to this. He didn't just, I think he just let it lie. But if this had come out later on with Lincoln, with all of these abolitionists, he's, his name is there, he's like Seward. Seward wasn't going to win being he was too abolitionist. And same with Lincoln. He may not have been nominated just because of that alone. Now, Arnie also sent, they also have the envelope down there, this broadside, and this is the uh, proceedings of the convention. And this was Lincoln's own copy. I'd love to get that. It would be great for the, a catalog, wouldn't it? Uh, anyway, but here is Lincoln's name, and here are the proceedings from that whole time, and Lincoln got that. So this is already out there. And God knows what Lincoln thought about this. Uh, he had to have been a little bit weirded out. I'm sure that he was there, but he kept quiet about it. But here's a story that I'll, I'll probably write up because it's just so much fun, the finding of this. And uh, now we'll see how that, how that works. Now, I just, I didn't tell, uh, this is one I just put in today for you alone because uh, this is something also I'd never seen. And there was, uh, you know, Fort Dearborn. And after a while, uh, population went beyond Chicago, and Chicago builds up. They don't need a fort, but it's federal land. So the War Department decides to sell this federal land. And they do a plot, and 
uh, here's part of that plot. You see at Lake Street, and they, they were selling these parcels of land. And here is one signed by Poinsett. The Poinsettia, of course, was named after him. Uh, and this is, as they say, military site of Fort Dearborn uh, become useless for military purposes. So an act authorizing the sale of military sites. They're selling parts of, uh, in, they call it in addition to Chicago, what they call it. And a guy bought it. This guy, I found, oops, this guy up here, I forget his name. Do I have his name here? Uh, Arthur Bronson, a New York financier. And he bought this property on Lake Street right there. Oh, excuse me, am I in light? I'm right here. This is Lake Street, right there, number four, is what he bought. Now, this is where Columbia College is, by the way, and because uh, I was doing some research on this, and uh, I wondered what, you know, what was there, it turns out where Columbia College is, you know, there in 1832-33, there was a typhoid epidemic. One of the reasons why in the Black Hawk War of 32, uh, Winfield Scott didn't make it out there because he was in Chicago but couldn't take, go in there because of the epidemic. Well, you know, epidemic, typhoid, yikes. So they took all the bodies, made a huge hole, put them all in, right underneath Columbia College. This is where it was, right there. Now, where those bodies went, I haven't gone to search where, what happened, because when they were making Columbia College, they must have found them. So I don't know what happened. That's kind of an interesting byproduct of having this addition to Chicago. So here are just quickly, did you know slides. Uh, did you know that the Stanley Cup was in the, in the uh, Abraham Lincoln bookshop at one time? It was. And did you know that his corpse became alive? <laughs> it happened. Here it is. He says, gentlemen, where am I? That's what they purported he said at that time. And I'm not going to go into right now the best forgery I ever had was a guy who was at a seance, and he said, and he asked, he wanted to get to Abraham Lincoln. And so through the seance, Abraham Lincoln came, and he, had, he asked him some questions. One of the questions uh, was, what do you think of uh, Bill Clinton? And Lincoln didn't like him. <laughs> uh, so he also, though, asked for a signature. And through the medium... There was a signature, and he sent me this signature. Uh, to, and now, you know, it, was, it wasn't that good a signature. Okay, Lincoln is dead. I'll give him that. <laughs> but it wasn't that good. So, okay, but then before I could really even get back to him, this is by fax, he sent me another signature, and he told me that he had also uh, gotten to Richard Nixon, who, by the way, also didn't like Bill Clinton. <laughs> He asked him that. But he also got a signature from him. But this Nixon signature was pretty good. He was pretty good at making Nixon. But in the larger picture, I came to the conclusion that right now, Richard Nixon is forging Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> it's my only conclusion I could come to. Now, I just want to close by saying that, you know, we study history, I certainly do, to lengthen my life. Because... Studying history lengthens one's life. When Lincoln was uh, 200 years old, in the, in 
February 12th of 09, the bicentennial of his birth, I felt 200 years old also. I knew Lincoln from his birth all the way till everything that happened in memory till today. And I myself felt 200 years old. And so history can add, you, know, you inculcate a person's life or an era, and they become years not your own, but they become your years added on. So what I'm going to do, by the way, next is uh, I'm going to study Moses and become 3,000 years old. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. I appreciate that. Thank you. Questions. I thought I answered everything. Yes, ma'am. Wabash. It was Wabash. It's Daly City or Harold uh, Washington City College, not Columbia. Oh, that's right. Yes, I'm sorry. Columbia's the other side. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate that. On YouTube, remember that was a mistake. <laughs> Anyone else? Yes, David. Yeah, you mentioned the name of King Hostick. I never met him. But I, was, I am an alumnus of Lincoln College, and they did have a room name for him when I was there. Oh, my God. Well, King Hostick was a dealer down in Springfield, and he raided museums and libraries. You know, in those days, Lincoln legals were nothing, and they were sitting there, and no one thought they had any... Any uh, use. So he'd buy them for whatever he bought them for. Clerks there and archivists would sell it to him. And he had amassed huge amounts. He also, if you went into his, his office in Springfield, literally his desk would be filled with Lincoln letters. It's just amazing. You just saw that. Wow. But he was also, you know, he could be <coughs> different. And uh, uh, so he had to be careful with hostage things. But he also saved uh, the. Hessler photographs of Lincoln, the beardless that you see, one kind of facing you, another one toward the side. When, when the um, uh, uh, Republicans needed a nice-looking Abraham Lincoln, and Hessler went down there and made, uh, made those photographs and made him uh, nice. Uh, and now I've forgotten why I was going in that direction. That gets to be 75, that happens, I guess. So anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Photographer who took that panoramic sequence of Chicago from the top of the courthouse. Uh, I'm not sure they they know. I'd have to go to Chicago History Museum to find out if they say it is, because there were a number of photographers in here. Well, Von Schneidel was gone, um, but uh, there were others that were here. So I'm not sure if it was Hester that did that. <laughs> if you'd like it to, we can, we can we can talk about that. Let's give me your, your drink, and we'll find out. So, quick two-part question about the Wells uh, desk. Mm -hmm. I recall taking my kids to see that at the shop many moons ago. But one uh, was that one of the so-called surrender tables, and two, how long did you have that in the shop? Well, it was one of the surrender. There were three tables in there. Most of the images of inside the courthouse uh, were um, two tables. But there are three of them extant later that showed three of them. 
And that's the one that Ellie Parker, uh, half Seneca Indian, who came out of Galeno with Grant, he had such a beautiful hand that he sat at that table to write out the terms of the surrender. Um, and so I had it, well, the first time, I didn't have it very long because I had someone to buy it. Uh, and he bought it, went up to Michigan. Oh, you, you know, it, it had his patina, more or less, still there. Really felt, you could feel being in that room with that. Even with a little bit of that, the water sloshing over from the uh, fish tank. So about three, four months later, I was going to go up to see him again. And I said, I'm coming up. He said, oh, Dan, I can't wait to see you and show you the table. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, he went into a story, even today, um, I'd like to go in there and strangle him, that he made it beautiful. It could have been come out of Sears Roebuck yesterday. It lost all that patina. He just made it gorgeous. We know what it is. We have all the provenance, but it doesn't look the same, unfortunately. And then I, then I got it back after his death, and then I had it a few months, four months maybe, and um, sold it to someone else. Uh, also sold a uh, um, Robert E. Lee General Order Number no. 9 from the field. And he even had a, a diary of the guy who got it uh, saying that he had sent this off to Lee. He had, he had come into camp. He was a, 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 a surgeon. And he had come in, Johnson's headquarters, saw the general order, and wrote it out himself, sent it off to Lee, and... Walter Taylor came back on horseback, he writes in his diary, uh, and said, don't bother the general. But he signed it. So yeah, I had that as well, from the field and the, and the diary saying where it came from. Do you still have the Lincoln, from the Lincoln children's dad? Entered into the no, no, I don't have it, although it's still available. <laughs> uh, it's with the family who owns it. And um, I would say, if I, I even told, said then when I had it, that there's probably about an 80% chance of being right. I couldn't go 100 on it. And the home thought it was enough that they would, if they had gotten it, or still they would like it, they put it on display. Uh, so they felt, okay, 80% is enough for us. And they also had in the home uh, a linen uh, chest that would have sat at the, uh, the foot of the bed and a washstand that came with it because uh, all of these had gone to the Lincoln's maid who had kept it. And then all three of those things uh, were still with her. Those two went to Springfield sold through uh, an antique dealer that she knew, and uh, the bed stayed. So the, uh, the owner has it now, and it is problematical because um, uh, it also went through Lloyd Ossendorf. Now Lloyd Ossendorf is, was the Lincoln photographic guy. We number Lincoln photographs after his name, O77, Ossendorf 77, is that one right in his face, the Gettysburg of, uh, photograph of November 8th, uh, 63. And uh, so anyway, uh, Lloyd had that. And Lloyd is known to many of us as a forger as well. 
and he has, his family has, that I told you about the Gettysburg Address that David Wills wanted, uh, thought he had, the Wills family. Well, um, this was uh, the last page, and allegedly in Lincoln's hand that Lloyd had, and uh, in the back of it, he, he himself wrote, because we all feel that, that, uh, you know, uh, endorsed by Lincoln to get it back to him, you know. And, but the interesting thing, Lloyd was really good, though, in this, is that he, he knew enough history to put in that it's unknown, really. It's controversial. Did Lincoln say, under God, at the cemetery? Or afterwards, when he wrote out the five fair copies afterward, did he put in, under God? Well, this particular, the last page, has a little carrot, and interlinearly, is under God, as if he was walking there, you know, I'd like to put in, and give me that inkwell, that, and under God, you know? So, um, he was good. Uh, that was really fun, but it's still sitting there, and no one wants it. But there you are. Yes? Um, I've been at this a very long time, like you have. I've got a fairly substantial <laughs> currency collection. 20 years ago, it was really something to have a currency collection. Now, with online auction catalogs, you can see a beautiful image of anything you want to look at, front, a verse, whatever. How is the digitization of artifacts affecting your business? Is it really changing? It's not so much the digitization. It's not so much that. It's um, the uh, internet and auctions. That's affecting my business. Because the auctions are really where things go. Huge amounts go to the auctions. And anyone now, you guys don't have to come to me in many of these things at auctions. Go online, and you can bid for yourself. Now, you might get in trouble. You know, be careful, do your research. And sometimes things that they say are good ain't. But nonetheless, that's so the, the auction houses are really uh, what have affected us dealers. At the same time, uh, the internet. It's, it's a double-edged sword because we can find things now more easily. That's how that, that um, oh my gosh, I've had put that up. Um, uh, that's how I got that uh, to know what was the, with that little receipt book because I could go through digitally, internet, and find things and they could get it back to me the same day. It was, it's great. But it's, and I can learn a great deal from, from there and find a lot of things uh, on the web, but so can my clients. So it's a double-edged sword, but I think it's better to have it than not, frankly, uh, but it's something we have to contend with, yes. And is it true that the more and more institutional ownership, like currency collections, in general, if you want to do research, those resources are so much easier than getting on the plane and flying to the Oh, sure. I mean, I'll tell you the big the big thing, maybe currency, but I'll tell you the, the big change are newspapers. Newspapers have been sitting there rotting for ever, and you couldn't get to them. How are you going to even know they're there? What's there? How do you find it? Now, they're up there. Every historian I know just praises being able to access newspapers. And that's really the new the new thing now to be able to use those newspapers for historical purposes. And so it's very good for that and probably for what you're talking about too. Anyone else? Yes. 
going back to that table thing, when the historical society had that big Civil War exhibit, I thought there was a table in that exhibit that they said was purchased by General Ford. Yeah, that, that's the that's the marble table that they have. Yeah, yeah Ord bought that. Yeah, and uh, allegedly for forty dollars. Yeah, it was money at the time. So uh, for forty dollars, he got he, General Ord bought that, and then it made it to the Gunther collection, and then Gun <laughs> and then Gunther, you know, that's that's the big collection at the Chicago Histori Chicago History Museum today. They also, by the way, uh, part of the Gunther collection. I. I've not seen it on display, but it's there. I've seen it. Uh, the skin of the snake from the Garden of Eden. <laughs> it's there. <laughs> Go look. Yeah. It's a scaled-down version. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. On that. On, yes, one more. It's a certificate of authenticity. <laughs> Signed by God. Well, I bet he does. <laughs> or she. Thank you so much, everyone. Appreciate it.